Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them this morning with me once again uh, to the Psalms, the book of Psalms. We continue this morning, for those of you who are visiting, uh, we are in a summer excursion in the Psalter, uh, this book of poetry that's found in the middle of our Bibles. And this morning we turn to a psalm that is, is less obscure than the ones that we have looked at in the last few weeks, but one that I thought was uh, most appropriate uh, for today. So turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, as you're turning there, one of the things that I'm attempting to do uh, in this series on the Psalms this summer is to give you a taste for the diversity of the Psalter, the diversity of the Psalms. And so we've looked at a prophetic hymn, we've looked at a hymn of praise, we've looked at a song of lament, and today we turn to what is known as a royal psalm. There are a few royal psalms in the Psalter, uh, another couple royal psalms are Psalm 72, Psalm 110. You see, Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It's also called a coronation psalm, and it was likely used in Israel's history multiple times as the kings in the line of David ascended and took their thrones. Now, it doesn't say here in Psalm chapter 2, but we learn from the New Testament that this is a psalm that was indeed written by David himself. But as you're going to hear, the language of Psalm 2 is so grand, the promise, the hope, it's so big that it, it literally overflows its banks and forces us to look beyond any earthly king. Simply put, no earthly king alone could be wrapped in these words. So yes, this is a coronation for the Lord's anointed one. But the Lord's anointed has, has two different horizons. Anointed is the Hebrew word that becomes Messiah. The Greek word that becomes Christ. And so this morning, surprise, surprise, we find the scriptures pointing us, helping us meditate on the person of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that's, at the end of the day, that's what we need. We just need more of Jesus. We don't need self-help principles. You don't need feel-good stories. You need more Jesus. I need more Jesus. And so if you're able as we traditionally do, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, Psalm chapter 2. Listen as I read. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. The modern-day British monarchy is a bit fascinating to me. Just a few months ago, Her Majesty the Queen became the first British monarch to celebrate a platinum jubilee, marking 70 years of service to the people of the United Kingdom, the realms, and the Commonwealth. It was a big deal. Maybe you remember seeing it on the news. It made not just national British news, it made world news news. The whole country basically shut down to celebrate the rule of one whose powers are largely symbolic. And yet people love it. People love her. It's always been a bit puzzling to me. But then I think about my own heart. I think about other things in our world. I think about the fact that we, we love the notion of kings and queens. We're captivated and, and drawn to such figures. It's, it's part of who we are. It's part of who we were made to be from, from King Arthur to Richard the Lionhearted to Aragorn to Aslan. We celebrate and we long for good kings to unite us, to bring peace, to bring safety under their reign. And so it makes sense then that when we come to the Bible and we find the idea of kingship everywhere, we ought not be surprised. Yeah, we might call our kings, at least in modern day America, presidents or prime ministers or all-stars, But our longing is the same. It's a human longing. It's a longing that's existed since time began. And this is important to remember as we hear Psalm 2, as we think about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a collection of voices. There are four stanzas. I tried to pause as I was reading to make those stanzas clear. They're clear in your translations, I'm sure. Verses one through three is David's astonishment at the revolt of man. 
Verses 4 through 6 is the reaction of God to that revolt. Verses 7 through 9 is the proclamation of the king. And then verses 10 through 12 is a warning for the people. Four stanzas, but I want to boil it down to two realities. To two points for us to meditate on as we think about this psalm for the next few minutes. And the first one is this. The world despises God's king. The world despises God's king. It's been this way since kingship came into the world. It will continue this way until the world is no more. But Nate, you say, I just thought you you were talking about how much we love kingship as human beings. And yes, we do, but, but two things. Number one is we like the thought of kingship, but not so much the reality. This is true about a lot of things I find in my life. We like the thought of them, but not really the reality of them. Kingship is fine as long as it's out there. Queen Elizabeth is just fine as long as she doesn't tell me to do anything. As long as she doesn't ask me to submit to what she wants or thinks should happen. So we like the thought of it, but not the reality. And secondly, specifically, we don't like God's rule. So yeah, we like kings, but we despise God's king. You see, for the ancient people in the writing of this psalm, the king of Israel and the God that he served was a threat, a very real threat. The reputation of this people preceded them. They had come into this land that God had promised under his blessing, and they had come into this land by force, and they had taken it because this God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, had given them success. And they might very well do it again. And so the kings and the rulers of this day wouldn't have it. They're not going to get pushed around. And so they will unite against a common enemy if that's what it took. And yet the psalmist knows this Davidic king. He knows the God who anointed him. And he basically says, what are you thinking Don't you understand who you are setting yourself up against? But this is the natural bent of humanity. Something the scriptures talks about over and over again. It's the creator God's rule that we despise. Why? Well, we, we say it's so restrictive. It's, it's slavery. It, it holds us back. The psalmist uses many, one, one of the many parallelisms to describe this in verse 3. He says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We believe the lie that God's rule is not where life is found. And so we search for it elsewhere. 
And this isn't some ancient localized phenomenon. It plays itself out over and over again throughout the course of human history in all kinds of political spheres and cultures. The world despises God's anointed. They despise God's king. The world hates Jesus. That hatred and that rebellion drove them to kill the man when he was here. You see, the Apostle Peter sees these verses in Psalm 2 as partly fulfilled at the cross of Christ. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 27, where he says this, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel. And so why are we surprised when our culture, indeed our very nation, is running away as fast as it can from everything that Jesus is about? from everything that God is about. No, we don't need to be surprised at that. And while we may grieve, and while we might, may pray against it and push against it with all that we can, we also need not fear. And that drives us to the second thing I think this psalm points us to this morning as the old hymn writer stated, trust and obey for there's no other way. The second truth is really an exhortation. The world despises God's king. Yes. So what's our response? Pledge allegiance to King Jesus. Pledge allegiance to King Jesus. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America to the republic for which it stands. One nation. Do do kids say that in schools anymore? I hope so. I certainly did when I was a kid. This weekend is July 4th, right? It's a holiday weekend. A weekend where we rightly celebrate God's goodness to us as a young and in, in in the grand scope of human history and existence, an insignificant nation on this earth. We love this country. We give thanks for this country. My own father and father-in-law served this country in uniform. We have people who serve this country here this morning in uniform. We must steward this country wisely. We ought to celebrate but we also need to be careful. We don't idolize this place. We don't set our hopes in this democracy. As the late Chuck Colson once said, the kingdom of God doesn't arrive on Air Force One. Sometimes in our culture, sometimes in our nation, people forget that. We remember that, that even here, maybe even more now than ever in our nation's history. 
there is a hatred for God's king. Nevertheless, we remember that our Lord, the God that we worship this morning, the God that has entered into relationship with us, is the sovereign one. He sets up kings and he deposes them. He does what he wills. And therefore, he is unconcerned. He is unconcerned about the raging of man. It's an exercise in futility. This is the only place in the Bible where it says that God laughs. And it's a mocking laugh. It's a mocking laugh that finds its way to righteous, holy anger. The Lord says, you have no right. You have no standing. This is my world. This is my king. The Zion mentioned here in our psalm is simply the hill on which Jerusalem was built and the symbol of God's presence with his people. It's also the place where Jesus was, according to Romans 1, 4, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. I love this quote by an author. I think he's a pastor in our denomination. read it a while back. His name is Rankin Wilborn. And he says this, it says, he says, it may not look like Christ is ruling the universe. Today it might look like just a crack of light under a door, but the New Testament writers were confident because they knew the light had dawned and that one day the door will open and that light, the sun of glory, will flood the whole room. The gravity of Christ being king is often lost on those of us who have no earthly king. But in the Roman Empire, the tiny church not only survived, but flourished even amid terrible persecution. They were willing to die because they knew who the real king was. And they believed that he was worth dying for. King David's men, I'm still quoting here, King David's men once said to David, you are worth 10,000 of us. They said that in 2 Samuel 18. And we can now say that to our king and make our lives wholly expendable to him and his cause. When you know that Christ is the seated and enthroned king, you too will be willing to surrender all your plans and ambitions into his hands. Perhaps with a persecuted church, you can even rejoice when you are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name because we know who the real king is and he is worthy. It's a great quote. Our call on this patriotic weekend is to pledge allegiance to King Jesus. Allegiance is simply defined as, as loyalty or commitment to a superior. Our Bibles put it very poetically, very beautifully in verse 12. Kiss him. Kiss him, it says. This is that ancient symbol of, of homage and submission before a king. And with it comes this, this intimacy and this commitment beyond saying a prayer. Beyond going to church, beyond checking a box, right? We kiss a lot of things in our lives, don't we? 
ourselves, our careers, our comfort, our causes? How much are we kissing the sun? King Jesus came to rule us not just in some distant future, but now. And so I ask, what, what, where are you not believing that he is what you need? Where are you not believing that he is what you need? Where are you not believing that his rule, that his ways are not good, are not right, are not for you? We may not be literally ripping out pages of our Bibles, but we certainly ignore things. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, just being forgetful. But our sin is an expression of disloyalty. It's an expression of defiance, saying, I, I know better than you. Every anxious despair needs to be backfilled with his good rule because Jesus is the king that we need. His voice is the one that we want to hear. And in verse 7, we get to hear it. See, when a new king was installed, he would read from a covenantal document pronouncing a decree. And those words in verses 7 to 9 make clear that this is the coronation of Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews declares in Hebrews 1.5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You see, no other king could speak like this. No other king has such a wide-reaching rule. King Jesus was born to rule. He sits at God's right hand, risen and ruling now. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, We see on the shore of time the works of the Caesars, the relics of the Mongols, and the last remnants of the Ottomans, Charlemagne, Maximilian, and Napoleon. How they flit like shadows before us. They were and are not, but Jesus forever is. As grateful as we are for this country, as wonderful as it is to celebrate our freedom, we too will be like fleeting shadows in the grand scope of history, but his rule, his church will reign on. And his second coming is still before us. And that's where the psalm ends. The psalm is a warning. It obviously explicitly states in verse 10, be warned. The images of his terrifying fury and the, and the smashing of pottery and the strength of the rod of iron in his hand, they're all intended to drive us to shelter from his justice. And the only place where we can find shelter is in Jesus. 
And so the invitation is not pledge allegiance to King Jesus, just like you can become citizens of any country you want to. You can renounce your citizenship of America, and you can become a citizen of Germany. You can become a dual citizen of America and Japan, whatever you want to do. No, this is not an option. Pledge allegiance to King Jesus because as one commentator wrote, there is no refuge from Him, only in Him. King Jesus rules and reigns. And He's coming again. Hear this promise and picture from the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, verse 15, from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron. So ultimately, Psalm 2 is a call for safety for those of you in this room who might at this point be exposed to His justice, to His righteousness, to his wrath. And for those of you who have already pledged allegiance to King Jesus and are hiding in the refuge that is him, this is a call for hope. A reminder that we need not fear. He will have his day. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. You see, it's not a mistake that Psalm chapter 2 is situated at the very beginning of the Psalter. It's not a mistake because it shows us where the whole course of human history is headed. It gives us an entire all-encompassing worldview that we must adopt. That we must adopt. An allegiance to King Jesus despite the world's hatred of Him. So, brothers and sisters, enjoy your fourth Celebrate the freedoms. Remember the sacrifices, but ultimately rejoice in the fact that this place is not your home, that the president is not your king, and that your confidence and your loyalties lie with someone so much greater, so much wiser, so much more wonderful. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for these truths from your word. We thank you for the reminder of who you are and of whose we are as we go from this place, as your word continues its work in our minds and in our hearts. We pray that it would shape us, that it would fashion us, that it would show us those places where we're not letting you rule, those places where we have our figurative fists held up in defiance of you. And Father, if there are those here or those listening who have not looked to you, Jesus, the one who proved yourself in coming to earth, living and dying in human history, but most importantly, rising from the dead, showing the world who you were, who you are. Father, I pray that for those who do not yet know you, that you would reveal yourself to them, 
that they would lay down their resistance and that they would pledge allegiance to you, the one who has come and the one who is coming again. Father, we thank you for such hope. We thank you for such peace. Father, we recognize that this is our mission as your people to declare your reign, to declare your rule, to live in such a way where that's evident. We ask for your grace. We need your help. Grant it to us, we ask, by your Spirit. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.